Uh, good evening, Mosaic. How's everybody? You guys good? Awesome. Hey, you want to stand with me? We're going to jump right into song together. It's magnifying Jesus tonight. I'm so glad you're here.
Covert, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet. I'm the communications coordinator here for Mosaic, and we're just so glad that you're here with us this evening. Um, it's been a beautiful fall day. We know yes. there are lots of places you could be on a Saturday night, so we're honored that you chose to be here with us. If this is your first time, um, we've got a couple different ways for you to get connected to us. We have our information booth in the foyer. Uh, we'd love to meet you in person. If you'd rather connect with us on a digital scale, we've got our uh, website and connections up there on the screen. Um, hey, coming up this next week on Wednesday, we have one of my favorite events that we do. We have Street Fest. It's coming back. We weren't able to do it last year, and we're so excited. I. I, before I was here, I worked full-time for Camp War Eagle, so costumes and games is kind of second nature to me, so I'm pumped about it. Um, we're going to have pizza by the slice. We're selling pizza for a dollar, plenty of candy, way too much candy, um, and loads of games. So we're going to be hosting that in front of the Student Center on Wednesday. It's going to be from 6 to 8. Um, park in front of the preschool building, and we'll have our welcome center um, up in the pavilion. Uh, another thing... We are doing communion tonight, so if you didn't grab some elements when you came in, we'll have those by the doors. Um, be sure to grab that, because we'll take that together this evening. Um, I'm gonna pray for us, and then we'll jump right back into worship. So, Jesus, thank you so much for this beautiful day. Uh, we give it to you, we give this evening to you. Um, Lord, whatever we're walking in here with, we just lay it down at your feet. Open our eyes, our ears, our hearts to receive what you have for us this evening. We love you. Stand with us. Let's worship.
to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Sing that he's worthy tonight. Man, more than our song, our lives, let's lift it up together. Worthy. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. Worthy of every breath we could ever Every breath we could ever breathe, we live for 
you are so good to us. And you love us so much that you would chase after us in our failures, in our shortcomings, in our sin. You call us loved. And we thank you for that. Open up our hearts to hear from you tonight, from your word. And we ask that you would speak. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Isn't it good to come together and worship our good God? Yeah, amen. Hi, my name's Colin. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, woo pig suey. We're all friends in this place. Um, hey, finish this sentence for me if you wouldn't mind. Liar, liar, pants on. Fire. Have you ever thought about how weird of an adage that is? But what a strange saying. Folklore has it going back really early on into the 18th century. Hilarious stories. I mean, boys with cigars in the barnyard and mom coming around the corner to like putting it in their back pocket and setting on fire to like people on the street who are lying and stealing and trying to cheat their way through society and there's police who are setting them on fire. I mean, hilarious, graphic, horrific stories of how lies have impacted. But as early as we can get, the etymologists believe there was a man named William Blake, uh, early 18th century. He was a, a poet and an author and he was contemplating the effects of lies on the human heart. The effects that, that lies can have on the souls of man. And he wrote this poem, and he said, Deceiver, dissembler, your trousers are alight. From what pole or gallows do they dangle in the night? And he continues with Old English that I won't try to even read on the stage tonight. But the idea was that as William began to process and write this poem, the effects of as James would call it, that the mouth is set on fire, the tongue is set on fire by hell. That our words have the ability to speak great life or horrific death in this world. And that lies have an, an immense and, and painful weight on us as humans. Have you experienced that pain before? Maybe if you can, recall, when was the last time someone lied to you? And what did that do? What did that do to your emotions and to your circumstances? See, Paul is writing Timothy in this moment where, where there's some lies going on. Uh, Paul, a church planner, uh, an apostle of Jesus Christ, writing to Timothy, one of his disciples, who he has left in Ephesus to, be, to establish a, a leadership amongst that church. Last time Paul was in Ephesus was in Acts chapter 20. He stood on the dock, was about to head off to Macedonia where the Spirit had called him to be on his missionary journey. And he has Timothy and all of the church at Ephesus gathered there on the shore as he's about to hop, uh, take sail. And he looks at them and he says this, that amongst you are going to come wolves among the sheep, that there will be those who are out to devour and divide you as a church, as a congregation. So hold fast to truth. It's the last thing Paul said to this church at Ephesus. And now he's writing Timothy where he's been off on his missionary journey and he's writing Timothy, just a reminder, this is why he's been writing him here in chapter one. We recalled that as I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there, Timothy, in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to vote themselves to myth and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing the work of God, God's work, which is by faith. And we've been in, in this book of 1 Timothy seeing how Paul is writing to Timothy of how this church in Ephesus, not only what they are to believe, but also their, their conduct, how they are to act. And so he's gone into detail as far as, this is how I want the organization of the church to to be the leadership structure. And now he's reaching a place at the end uh, where the book begins to take a shift. And he comes to Timothy and he begins to address specifically these false teachings, these false teachers that Timothy's gonna be up against there in Ephesus. And it's with that context that we dive in now to chapter three. 
if you'll look with me. Chapter 3, verse 14. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of our faith. First, Paul's redirecting Timothy here that I care about your doctrine, your teaching, what the church is believing. And not only that, I care about your conduct, your character. See, for, for the church, those, those are inseparable. What we believe and how we behave for a follower of Jesus, those, those are unified. They come together hand in hand. And how often, I mean, we don't have to say it out loud, but let's just think of the past year. A spiritual leader, a pastor, where maybe either the teaching was incredible, but, but the character just didn't quite match, did it? And it caused horrendous effects in, in the community of faith. Or maybe on the other side, you see the conduct and, and, and the behaviors of someone, and then you get underneath and you go, oh my gosh, I think you're part of a cult. <laughs> what is that teaching, that doctrine? Well, how does that operate? And Paul's writing to Timothy to say, I'm writing you instructions for what to believe and how that belief should function. And, and notice the, the identity that he calls uh, the church to here of God's household. Uh, that, that Here the idea is, uh, in the Greek is oikos, Theos, this is the dwelling place of God. This is temple language. So if you're, you're familiar with Ephesus, there's one of the seven wonders of the world that is located there. It's the temple of Artemis, Greek goddess. I mean, this thing is as long as a football field. <laughs> it, is, it is quite the architectural uh, display. And on the front of uh, ancient Near East temples, as well as into Greek mythology, there would be all these columns, but there would, at the entrance would be these two large pillars. And these pillars would function in such a way, number one, they would uh, absolutely provide a support for the temple, but it, it gave guard to the, the entrance. It allowed whoever was working at the temple that day, whether it was a priest or a prophetess, whoever it was, to guard who was coming in and who was going out. That these pillars established, there's an entrance into the presence of something divine. Next, in Greek mythology, they would paint on these pillars. And they would have symbols and wild animals and griffins and lions. And, and the idea was that by painting on these pillars, not only would you guard who comes in and who goes out, you'd also be warding off spiritual entities. That these paintings on these pillars would be something that were to guard that temple, that deity, from any evil, warding off evil spirits. And lastly, that, that these two pillars were meant to be something in the temple where you could have someone who's beginning to enter into a space of beauty. They're, they're beginning to enter into something of awe. And so ancient Near East temples, as well as in Ephesus, they would build temples to these idols and that you were coming into something sacred. And so here's this little house church in Ephesus sitting right next to the great wonder of the temple of Artemis. And Paul looks at this little church and he says, you are a pillar and foundation, the household of God. This is an identity statement for this church at Ephesus. See, whereas Artemis has all these idols and, and, and the, these claims of, of gods who are existing in there, by God's spirit church, he dwells within you. That the spirit of the living God, he dwells within his church. So from the very first part of our doctrine, we have to understand the identity of the church is as God's dwelling place. That it pleases him to make himself known. In the, the letter to Ephesians, he would say, Paul writes to Ephesus that the manifold wisdom of God is being put on display through his church. You're a dwelling place, that God dwells in his church. And as God's dwelling place, church, your pillars like the entrance into the presence of God. In the same way, the temple would function and operate to, to guard who's coming in and who's going out. He's calling the church here. There's some false teachers. Be on guard, Timothy. And as we'll see here in a little while, there, there's a spiritual reality that the church has to remain aware of, not with some paintings uh, on ourselves as if to ward off evil spirits, but in and through ideas that the enemy is using to twist and corrupt this world. And he closes with that, uh, the pillar and foundation of truth. And now I, I don't have time to get all philosophical on us, but the best definition of truth I've ever heard is that which is in accordance with 
reality. What is truth is in accordance with reality. Therefore, if it is not real, it is not true. And Paul is calling Timothy and the church here at Ephesus that you are to be a support. You are to hold up the truth of who God is and what God does. See, because in a world of instability, here in Ephesus, where you have the primary intellectual thought of the Greeks, you have the, the political rule and economic rule of Rome, and you have the, the religious moral authority of the Pharisees, there's a lot of competing ideologies in that for Ephesus. And here Paul is calling the church to be the foundation and support of truth. To not be like the culture, but to provide a, a countercultural way known as the way of Jesus. And they are to be a stabilizing presence of truth in their community. Could you imagine in our nation, in our city today, if as the presence of, of God's dwelling place, if the church in Northwest Arkansas would take this call seriously to be a stabilizing presence amongst all the ideas in our world? And then Paul continues. Follow me in uh, verse 16. He says this, that beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among nations, was believed on in the world and was taken up in glory. And, and here Paul's beginning to, to shift this idea of truth with godliness, your doctrine, as well as your character. Now, so often, godliness is perceived as our behavior, the things we do. So we do this to become godly, or uh, particularly, as we'll see with the false teachers there in Ephesus, um, they had some certain regulations for what they saw as a person who was godly. And what Paul is calling us to is there's a mystery to true godliness here. And then he goes into this first century hymn, a song. And there's a lot of different views about what this hymn is saying and what it can mean. Uh, my favorite view, though, is that it's beginning to show that there is this beautiful display of heaven and earth taking place in the gospel of Jesus. So he says that uh, he appeared in the flesh, worldly, that Jesus put on flesh and came into this world and was vindicated by the spirit, the heavenly reality. So we have this earthly and heavenly reality becoming unified. Next, that uh, he was seen by angels, heavenly, and proclaimed among nations, worldly, earthly. Then that he was believed on in the world, our space, and taken up into glory, God's space. And from Genesis all the way to Revelation, from a garden where God dwells with mankind to a city where God dwells with mankind, this is the good news of the gospel that we have a God who doesn't, is not distant or far off, but actually comes. That's the incarnation, God with us, that he steps into this world. And what started with uh, heaven and earth becoming unified ends with what Jesus calls a new heaven and new earth. That's the good news and the fulfillment when Christ returns. And that we as followers of Jesus, our entire worldview should be shaped by this reality, this truth. See, there's a couple of words that I think we need to understand as we approach truth tonight. One is orthodoxy. That is right thinking. Ortho just means correct. So when you hear the term orthodoxy, they're saying right belief, right practice. So for our orthodoxy, that is our, our head knowledge, what we think. And Paul is calling the church in Ephesus there, think rightly. Timothy, guard your teaching because you're going to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, your thoughts your worldview. Uh, one apologist defines a worldview as the origin, the meaning, the destiny, and the morality of mankind. Our origin, where do we come from? Meaning, why are we here? Destiny, where are we going? Morality, what's right and what's wrong. And every single person has a worldview. Every single person, whether they are atheist to agnostic to Muslim to Christian, they have a worldview, a way of seeing the world that's trying to answer those questions. And it's only in the Christian worldview that I would argue there's consistency. That we have a God whose origin, he's, he's created us and he's good. And that our, our morality is not dependent upon us, it's dependent upon him who is good. And our uh, meaning why we're here is to join him, to partner with him in his goodness. 
And lastly, where are we going? Our destiny, the end result is to dwell with him. Those who follow Jesus to dwell with him and his goodness forever, a worldview. And so often we, we stop with just the orthodoxy. And as followers of Jesus, I think what Paul's calling us here too is not just having right thoughts, but it, taking on the next form. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. So not only to have right beliefs or thinking about God, but then for Jesus to begin to shape our actions, our orthopraxy, the things we do in this world. That we wouldn't be those, as James says, not merely hearers of the word, but doers of it. That our actions, our behaviors would begin to be aligned with what we believe. Because what we believe is it should, with our worldview, begin to shape what we do and do not do in this life. And not only there, but to move it to the orthopathy, that is the heart, the attitudes. In Hebrew, the heart was the driving center of what you do and who you are. And so Christ, his hope is to, to conform you into his image, not only in your thoughts and not only in your behaviors, but your affections and your desires. And all of this is a work of the Holy Spirit, not something you or I can achieve on our own. Which brings us back to, to Paul's point on the mystery of godliness. It is a person, not a behavior. As a follower of Jesus, he is the one who's instilling and changing and transforming us to live out his messages, his teachings, and his practices in this life. To, to summarize, I think this is what Paul is trying to write to the church at Ephesus through Timothy. I think what Paul is saying is that what the church believes will shape how she lives. As the bride of Christ, what we believe, what we put into our minds will begin to shape our behaviors and how we live in this world. And how the church lives will shape how others see Christ. Uh, to, to put it in a, a much shorter way, uh, my friend John Schuler the other day at lunch, he was up here playing bass just a little bit ago, uh, I asked him, I said, man, what, do you, what kind of movies or shows or like TV are you watching? And he's like, man, not much. Garbage in is garbage out. And I thought, that is a great one-liner. What we put into our minds, it's a window into our souls, which then is what's gonna come out of us. And I think what Paul is trying to guard here at Ephesus is belief primarily in the person, who Jesus is, and work what Jesus does. Follow me in chapter four, with the false teachers. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Yikes. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared with a hot iron. So um, Paul has some pretty bold statements about these false teachers. First, um, you have to understand, Paul is not addressing people in the church who are having doubts. Um, this isn't those who are, are having questions or sin struggles or wondering what is true and what is not. If anything, I think if I look at the life of Jesus, take Thomas, for example, one of his disciples who doubted and becomes close to the heart of the Father and touches the holes in Jesus' hands. I don't think Paul is, is condemning here those who have questions about truth. I think if anything, he's inviting it. No, 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 what Paul is condemning here is those who have known truth and have twisted it for their own gain. It's the term apostasy. It's to not just to know what is true, it's to begin to twist it, corrupt it, and say something that, is, that you know is not true. So here in Ephesus, there are these teachers who were once a part of the fold here in Ephesus and now have twisted the gospel for their own gain. And Paul is saying they are inciting a revolt. This is a rebellion, not only against you, church, but against the living God. And he goes into further detail that it's demonic in nature. These things are taught not just by mere men. These are the teachings of demons. And I think in our culture today, we've, we've lost this, that there are lies that are at play even in this room right now, and it's the enemy at work. That these lies, these teachers are, are demonic in nature. C.S. Lewis said that one of the greatest problems in the West that we could face regarding the devils is twofold. One is to obsess about them so much so to seek them out, Ouija boards and that like, or to, to disacknowledge them, to say they do not exist and completely ignore them. 
Paul wants the church at Ephesus to understand and he wants us to understand these false teachings are straight out of hell. And they're founded upon lies. So as the church is a pillar founded upon the person and work of Jesus is truth, these false teachers and their teachings, it's founded upon lies at the source of it. And this goes all throughout the biblical narrative. Jesus, for example, in John chapter eight, he is talking to Jews who had just believed in him. And he said, if you abide, you remain, you stick to my word, my teaching, my way of life. You are truly my disciples, my followers, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. See, Jesus understands in Hebrew that the word truth is the word emet. Say emet. Emet is beautiful because in Hebrew, it takes the first letter, the, the middle letter, and the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. First, middle, and last. And what emet is communicating in Hebrew is that there is an eternal divine nature to truth. That when God speaks, his language is truth. He does not lie from beginning to end. Truth, that which is in accordance with reality, emet. And Jesus is saying that as you know that, as you know me, it brings freedom and life to the full. And on the other side, later he's talking to the Pharisees and he says, you belong to your father, the devil, for you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not handling or not holding to the truth for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language for he is a liar and the father of lies. It's fascinating because emet, truth in Hebrew, the opposite of it is not actually lie. It's the word met. They take off the last letter, that which is a, represents eternal, and it represents death. So there's something Jesus is, is articulating here that with truth, there is life and freedom. And with lies, there is death and corruption. And the devil has not changed his strategy up at all since Genesis 3. Just a false truth, a half truth. He told them in the garden, you could become like God. Problem, they're made in his image, he twists it, and we're still facing the results of it today. Paul continues. They forbid people to marry. This is what the false teachers are doing. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So here's, uh, in short, some people think it's what's known as a saitism. That is that you deny yourself and that makes you spiritually godly. So deny being married and deny certain foods and then, then you'll be a follower. Um, another false teaching is known as Gnosticism in the first century, which is why I love in Paul's hymn where he brought the, the, the earth and heavens together. In Gnosticism, they would teach that uh, your physical is completely evil. There is no good in it, only spiritual. So the incarnation of Christ, Jesus putting on flesh, nah, means nothing because it's a spiritual reality. And whichever one Paul's addressing here, He's rooting it, and this is a lie. This is a half-truth straight out of hell. And he says in four, for everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it was received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. In summary, these false teachers have a false gospel. They have distorted who God is and what God does, and it is leading the church of God, followers of Jesus, astray into a lie. And uh, we have some of these lies in our culture today, don't we? And we have some of these lies within our own hearts tonight, don't we? A distortion of who God is and what God does that just, it seems to kind of create hell on earth around us, doesn't it? Paul writes to the church in Ephesians saying, finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Listen to this carefully, church. For our struggle, there's a false gospel in our city today that, that God's hope and goal for your life is to make you wealthy and comfortable. It's not true. If anything, it's completely counter-biblical because the biblical story is that this is a sinful, fallen world and we struggle and God joins us in that struggle. 
that he steps in and is with us in the valley of the shadow of death. First thing, friend, you will struggle. You will have trouble in this life as a Christian. Next, notice, it is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities. You watch Fox News lately? How about CNN? Have you seen the way they talk to one another? I mean, they hate each other, don't they? And I'm not here to make a political statement. I'm just saying, they have picked which side they're on and they have thrown bombs across it. And our culture is suffering the divide. But notice, Paul says, where are these authorities? Where are these uh, leaders? Against the powers of this dark world and against rulers and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Friends, our, our enemy is not flesh and blood. It is not human. It is a spiritual reality of lies that are at work in the world. And so as followers of Jesus, we're at war with these ideas from hell. Um, prophetic words from Paul because uh, writing to, to Ephesus at a time where there's a lot of tribalism taking place. You have those following Rome. You have those following the Judaizers. You have those giving into Greek mythology and they, they can't break breath with one another. And Paul's writing them saying, no, 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 no. The manifold wisdom of God is being put on display through you, church. Unite on the person and work of Jesus. I think of... Um, Jesus, when he casts out a demon-possessed man, the, the first thing the demon-possessed man is he comes to Jesus and he's in his right mind. But Jesus cares deeply about what we believe. There's a, a saying um, by a guy named Rup Rupitus Melindus. He said this, that in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. He said this at a time known as the 30 Years War, one of the goriest wars of the church um, in Europe. And they were divided and Christian brother against brother, sister against sister. It was wreaking havoc on Europe. And Rupertus, this uh, Lutheran German theologian and pastor, said, no, 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 we have to get back to what is true here. Because it's there that we have to unify in the essentials. But we have a triune God the person and work of Jesus, who he is and what he does, that the role and function of the church in this world, these things that we cannot change, these dogmas throughout church history, we're not gonna change, we're not gonna shift. We need to unify on these. And then he said on the non-essentials, those beliefs, those differences, we need to have some liberty, some freedom for diversity. That whether you think communion needs to be here or done this way or baptisms like this or like that, we don't need to kill each other over these things. Don't change the essentials, but let's give each other some liberty for diversity in these. And then he closes with uh, that in all things charity, that for one another, it's just, it sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? And here's my fear is that most of us in our, our nation at least are on the verge of a 30 year war because our opinions have taken primary. That truth is dictated based upon what I think and how I feel, not upon what God has revealed. And we're suffering the consequences of it in our world today. And friends, I think if we as a church could come together on the essentials and unify and then have the space to go, oh, we disagree on some things and actually begin to celebrate those differences, but in all of it for the good of our city as well as God's kingdom to watch and join him at work in our city and in our world. And this is only done in the context of community, <laughs> not alone. This is not, we gotta get away from theology just being you alone in a room with a Bible. No, it's a discourse, it's a conversation. As the church is that pillar of truth, we need each other. Because I have opinions and sometimes the enemy's trying to get me to get those opinions to go to the central part of who I am and I need a brother and sister in Christ to say, not in this house. That doesn't display who our God is. Get that out of here. If you're not doing this with other brothers and sisters, friend, you're missing out on an essential part of being a part of the bride of Christ. See, what the church believes shapes how she lives 
and how the church lives shapes how others see Christ. So two practices tonight. Uh, First, personal, second, corporate. Um, There's a practice called the daily office. It is set aside time for you and the Lord to process, God, where are you at work with me today? What I'd love for you to do is whether it's tonight, maybe tomorrow or, or throughout this week, schedule a time for you and God to get together and to talk through some of the lies you might be battling. See, because you're at a spiritual war and the enemy is not changing his game. He's just trying to get you with little, little lies that could lead you astray. And to be able to first come to God and say, Lord, I wanna acknowledge my thoughts, my feelings, that orthopraxy, the circumstances. Maybe you're in uh, the thick of it right now. You are in trouble and pain and you are feeling alone in that struggle. So first, acknowledge it, honor that, don't shame it. Next, identify the lie in there. What's the enemy's voice saying to you? Maybe that you're alone and no one cares. Maybe, maybe that God isn't there, or if he is, he really just, he's not gonna help you. Take, as Paul says in to Thessalonica, test every spirit, take that lie, and then seek truth. Apply the scriptures, search God's word. As 1 Peter 5 says, that cast all your anxiety, all your burdens upon him because he cares for you. That's true. And then to respond, to submit and say, I submit to that truth and I give you thanks. As Paul says, that we give thanks at the end of 1 Timothy, that we give thanks to God. And so Lord, I I know you're good. Thank you for caring for me. and, And I bring you this to be with me. A daily office. I'd encourage you to start battling those lies you're facing personally. Next, a a more corporate response, Um, the Nicene Creed. Um, The church was facing a heresy known as Arianism. There was a teacher named Arian who had denied the deity of Christ. Um, He had gone so far as to say that, that Jesus was actually never flesh. He was only spirit, therefore neglect the flesh. Do what you want with your flesh. And uh, it began to wreak havoc. It actually still wreaks havoc today. Um, Jehovah's Witness and our Latter-day Saint friends, this is actually a little more closer to their theology. It's rooted in Arian. And the early church came together in Nicaea and uh, third century. And they, they came and they said, we want to be very clear to search the scriptures and bring together that this is who God is. So that for centuries to come, the church could come together and proclaim truth. So friend, I, I wanna invite you tonight, would you stand? And we're gonna read the Nicene Creed. We're gonna sing the Apostles' Creed and then we're gonna take communion because the church for centuries has been gathering together to be formed by the truth of the gospel and the good news of Jesus and his kingdom. And so tonight, maybe you got doubts, maybe you got questions, maybe you're walking into this place and you're just like, I don't belong here. All broken, all matter, one gets the glory. We're glad you're here. And whether this is the hundredth time you've proclaimed this faith or the first time, with one voice for the good of our hearts, our brothers and sisters, and our world, would you confess who God is and what God does? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten and not made, of the same essence as the Father, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. And he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. Good news, his kingdom will never And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, 
He proceeds from the Father and the Son and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. And he spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the new world to come. Amen.
would, grab your communion elements. Paul wrote to a church called Corinth, and they were, uh, they were pretty messed up. <laughs> they had some divisions. And he said to them that when they gather, that this is what they will unify around. Communion, remembering who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And that it is there, one communion, one spirit, one baptism, that we will find unity as a church for the good of our world. And he said this in 1 Corinthians, read it with me. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Friends, in celebration of who our God is and what our God does, his body broken on our behalf, take now and eat. The blood of the Lamb of God, King of Kings, for our sins was shed in celebration. Take now and drink. And oh, may we be a church who doesn't just believe it in this room, but who can put it to practice outside of these walls. If you need prayer, if you're in the struggle tonight, we'd love, our prayer team will be right here for you. Please come, we'd love to pray with you in the lies you're battling. If you're new, please don't leave without saying hey to someone in the info booth out front. And uh, friends and family, we love you. Let's go be the pillar and foundation of truth that God calls us to tonight in our cities. Grace and peace.